Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Ruta Podcast, and this is week number 40. That's right. That means we only have 12 more weeks left until we finish the year 2020. And I know some of you are glad to finish 2020 because of all the craziness that's happened, but nonetheless, it also means our Bible reading is slowly coming to an end. However, the good news today is that we get to start the New Testament. We've been in the Old Testament, it seems like, forever and a day, (laughs) and now we get to go to the New Testament. So today we're going to work on the book of Matthew, the first 16 chapters as we begin. As we begin to look at Matthew, here are a few things to keep in mind. First, we must understand that every gospel was written with a primary focus of how the writer wanted to portray Jesus. For Matthew, Jesus is the long-awaited king or messiah. Second, Matthew was written to a Jewish audience, so we must look at it through that lens. Third, there are nearly 130 quotations and allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Matthew alone. And this makes sense because Matthew quotes from the Old Testament to show that the Messiah they were looking for then in the Old Testament has now appeared here in the New Testament in the person of Jesus. Fourth, Matthew has a large emphasis on teaching material, things like the Sermon on the Mount, Parables of the Kingdom, the Olivet Discourse, just to name a few. Jesus is the king who needs to instruct the people on how to live in light of his coming. Fifth, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic gospels, and this means that they are similar in many ways. So that means when reading through them, you get a complete picture or history of the life of Christ. Now, John is different because the gospel of John gives us more of a theological life of Christ, and we'll deal with that when we get to the book of John. But right now, we need to head into the book of Matthew. Matthew begins his gospel with the birth of the king. That's the subject of chapter 1. You know, from a Jewish perspective, Jesus' genealogy is very important as it confirms his legitimacy as the promised Savior and King of Israel. And so Matthew's genealogy focuses on the line of Joseph as it's traced back to David. But in reading the genealogy, we come across five women's names. And this is unusual for genealogies, but it serves a purpose. All five of these women were in some sense or another sinners, outcasts, and foreigners whom God used to carry forward his saving purpose. They foreshadow the lowly and the poor, the outcasts, and the ultimately the Gentiles, you and me, who will respond to the offer of salvation. Now, in that first chapter, notice carefully in verses 18 and verse 20, it says specifically that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, and this was seen as a clear fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. And as we continue our journey through the gospel, you will find me referencing Isaiah a lot. This is because throughout the New Testament, Isaiah is the most quoted of all the prophets, at least 65 times, and Um, Isaiah is named at least 22 times specifically in the New Testament. So it's an understatement to say that Isaiah is important for understanding the New Testament. He is. In fact, the famous 4th century theologian Jerome, who translated most of the Bible into Latin, we call it the Latin Vulgate, he said, quote, Isaiah should be called an evangelist rather than a prophet because he describes all the mysteries of Christ and the church so clearly that one would think he is composing a history of what has already happened rather than prophecy to what is to come. Now, the rest of chapter 1 gives us two names for this coming king. The first one is Jesus in verse 21, which means Jehovah is salvation. And the second one is Emmanuel in verse 23, which means God is with us. So even the names of this coming king were suitable for what he came to do. Now, chapter 2 is termed the reception of the king. This is well-known story of the visit of the wise men to worship the king, which causes Herod to want to get rid of this newborn king. There are a lot of details we could sink our teeth into here, but what you need to see is the bigger picture. This is a chapter of contrasts. The king was received the right way by the wise men, but the king was received in the wrong way by Herod. 
The wise men loved Jesus. Herod hated Jesus. The wise men came from hundreds of miles away to see Jesus, whereas the religious leaders couldn't bring themselves to travel six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem to see Jesus. The wise men had limited knowledge of where and when this king would be born. They had to follow a star. The religious leaders had access to the scriptures, telling them the exact places they needed to go. Now, after the news of Herod wanting to kill Jesus, an angel appears to Joseph, instructing him to take his family to Egypt. And while in Egypt, we're told that Herod dies, and then that same angel reappears again to Joseph, telling him to return to the land of Israel. But this time, Joseph and Mary settle in the north in a town called Nazareth. Chapter 3 of Matthew is about the dedication of the king. And it was common when Jesus lived for forerunners to prepare the pathway or the way for a king. In fact, when a king would visit a town, his emissaries or ambassadors would go ahead of him to announce his visit and prepare the way. Sometimes even do minor road work um, on the roads leading to the town or sometimes even the town itself. John the Baptist not only prepared the way for Jesus, but also announced him as an important person, implying his royalty. And so John the Baptist announced the arrival of the king and his kingdom. Remember that at this point in history, Jesus was offering to usher in the kingdom for Israel. All they needed to do was put their faith in him as their Messiah. However, we know that the Jews rejected uh, their king, and that happens later on in chapter 13, 12, 13. But at this point, that rejection hasn't happened yet. By the way, when I use the term kingdom, I'm normally referring to the future millennial kingdom. However, at the time of these events in Matthew, Jesus was offering that kingdom to the Jews then. So part of me is sad that the Jews rejected their king, but the other part of me is glad because that rejection made the way for the church so that you and I could experience salvation and be part of that future kingdom. This chapter also tells us that Jesus was baptized by John. And you might ask, why in the world did Jesus need to be baptized? Well, the text of Matthew says it's to fulfill all righteousness. And the key is understanding the term righteousness in the book of Matthew. See, in Matthew, the word righteousness has connotations of ethical righteousness, which is conformity to God's will. So Jesus understood that it was God's will for John to baptize him. Uh, There is no Old Testament prophecy that states that Jesus would be baptized, but there is prophecy that the Messiah would submit himself to the Father or submit himself to God. That's in Isaiah 42, verse 1. Now, also note that at Jesus' baptism, all three members of the Trinity are present. And look at what's happening. God places his spirit on his servant Jesus, which shows that Jesus is being empowered by God for divine service. God the Father is the one speaking. And he is the one who identifies Jesus in particular as the Son, the Messiah, the Anointed One. No sooner than Jesus is dedicated as king than he gets his first test, which we find in chapter 4 we have the temptation of the king. Jesus' genealogy and virgin birth prove his legal human qualifications as Israel's king. His baptism demonstrated his divine approval, and now his temptation would demonstrate his moral fitness to reign as king. God has just proclaimed an authenticated his king. And so it seems that Satan jumps on the opportunity to put Jesus to the test. And I'm not going to go into detail about each temptation. What you need, again, is the bigger picture. Ultimately, the substance of each test has to do with Jesus' devotion or obedience. He is being tempted to break faith with the Father and disavow his sonship. Also, don't miss the significance of the place Jesus is tempted, the wilderness. This takes us back to the wilderness wanderings of Israel, where she was tempted for 40 years, compared to Jesus' temptation of 40 days in Matthew. So we see Jesus was the obedient son, whereas Israel was the disobedient son. 
The rest of the chapter shows us now that Jesus is ready to start his ministry. The forerunner John had completed his ministry, and now it was time for the king to appear publicly. So he begins his ministry in Capernaum, which is in the tribal areas of Zebulun and Naphtali. That's a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah, once again, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus then calls the four of eventually 12 men that would be called his apostles or disciples. The last few verses of chapter 4 serve as a summary of Jesus' ministry. It stressed the varied activities and geographic areas reached by Jesus' ministry. Um, And his ministry involved three main parts, teaching his disciples, preaching to the multitudes, and healing many who were sick. Now, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew is called the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the teaching of the king. The material in these chapters are ethical instructions for Jesus' disciples that apply from the time that Jesus gave them until the beginning of the kingdom, which the disciples thought was very soon. And since the kingdom is still yet future, then these ethical practices are still in effect and are still commands that we ought to follow today. The first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount are probably the most well-known. They are called the Beatitudes followed by a reminder that we are salt and we are light to the world. But Jesus wants our good works to draw others to him. And what are those good works? Well, they are further elaborated on in the very next chapter. So the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6 is basically a contrast. Murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, these are things to avoid. Whereas things like helping the poor, prayer, fasting, priorities, trusting, treating others as you would want to be treated, these are the good things. Then the last part of chapter 7 is a series of choices. And the right choices would prepare them for the coming kingdom, whereas the wrong choices would have future consequences. Now, please remember that we are summarizing the reading for the week. You know, I have to be selective. And honestly, I'm in pain right now having to pass over so much truth that we all need to hear from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We could spend uh, an entire podcast just in this little section, but we have little time. And I suppose that's what Jesus felt like um, with his little time he had here on earth. If I had it my way, we'd still be talking about chapter 1. we got to carry on to chapter 8. Now, if the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7 demonstrates Jesus' authority and teaching, then chapters 8 through 10 demonstrate his power over many things, uh, nature, disease, demons, and death. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, we have three healing miracles, the leper, the centurion's servant, and the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. The point of these healing miracles was to show that Jesus cared about all kinds of people from all walks of life. Whether you were a leper, a Gentile, or a woman, Jesus was extending his grace to people um, that the Jews normally excluded or ignored as unimportant. Then in verses 18 to 22 of chapter 8, we have two stories of discipleship that lead into one more familiar story or familiar miracle of Jesus, the calming of the storm, which is actually a lesson in discipleship as Jesus rebukes the disciples, quote, little faith. You see, Jesus was more concerned about the quality of his disciples' faith in him. Now, the chapter concludes with the healing of the demonic man showing Jesus' power over demons. Now, let me take a minute and remind you about miracles and their purpose. When Jesus performs a miracle, he always has a purpose in it. It's not just to benefit the recipient. It authenticates who he is in his ministry. Remember, the Jews were always looking for a sign. Well, Jesus gave them plenty of signs. And normally that sign was not just miraculous in nature, but a moment to teach or instruct. So as you read the miracles, look for the instruction that Jesus gives from the miracle. Now, after the healing of the paralytic in the beginning of verse, beginning verses of chapter 9, we have some more lessons on discipleship. And as Jesus calls Matthew to be one of his disciples, Matthew's desired to have a meal at his house to celebrate his change in life. And this new disciple of Jesus invites all his friends, many who were also tax collectors. Then the Pharisees find out about what Matthew was doing, even though they weren't invited. <laughs> the Pharisees had a real problem with Jesus associating himself with people who were sinners. But also notice that the Pharisees don't approach Jesus with the problem. They go 
to the disciples. They're trying to undermine it. And before the disciples could answer, Jesus speaks up to the Pharisees, and he uses Hosea 6, 6 as a proof text. And he says this, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Jesus takes the Old Testament and shows these religious leaders that they were not interpreting the law correctly. God was concerned about the heart, while these religious leaders were concerned with outward appearances and external acts. Now in chapter 9, verses 14 through 17, it's a small section. We find the disciples of John, and they're coming to Jesus with a specific question of fasting. And fasting was a practice that was of great importance to the religious community of the first century. And these disciples of John the Baptist um, had not left John to follow Jesus, even though John clearly said to follow him. Okay, So basically, Jesus says to them, why would you want to fast, an act which required time alone when the bridegroom, Jesus, was with them? Jesus would only be with them for a short period of time. Why waste that time on fasting? By the way, the Bible does not command us to fast. Now, some might argue that in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, there was a required fast. Yes, but when Jesus died on the cross as the once and for all sacrifice, there was no longer needed that annual Day of Atonement and the fast that associated with it. You know, fasting is a great spiritual practice, but at this historical time in the Gospels, it was not what was important. It was Jesus who was important. Now, the remaining portion of chapter 9 includes four more miracle stories. The cluster of miracles here demonstrates Jesus' ability to heal. And then the last few verses of chapter 9 demonstrated the need for the disciples to help and share in the ministry of Jesus. This leads us right into chapter 10, where Jesus selects 12 specific men or disciples that would be his small group, so to speak, to reach the world. And so in chapter 10, these 12 disciples are commissioned with a task. They're told to focus on the Jewish population living in Galilee. They were to go to the lost sheep of Israel. They were instructed to travel light and rely on the generosity of those they would meet. However, this task was not going to be easy. There would be danger and there would be dangerous people. They must always keep their guard up. But in the midst of the hostile world that they were in, they should not have an attitude of fear but of faith, even when their family relationships would be challenged by their commitment, they still needed to remain loyal to Jesus. Think of it this way. When Jesus took up his cross and carried it through the streets of Jerusalem, being mocked and beaten, knowing that this cross that he is carrying would be the cross on which he would die, knowing that his death would be the answer to man's sin problem since the Garden of Eden, knowing that his obedience to the plan of God the Father was absolutely crucial. There is no pride, no arrogance here. It's all humility. It's all selflessness. He was making the Father's plan the most important part of his life's existence. And by example, the disciples chapter 10, were to do the same. The person who lives for the present loses the real purpose of his life. That's what Jesus was trying to tell his disciples. Now, that rolls us right into chapters 11 and 12, which are the start of the rejection of the king. The rejection of the king begins with the doubting of John the Baptist. Think about that. John was the one who pointed others to Jesus, and now he is backtracking. Why? Because he's probably fell into the thinking of those around him. Jesus didn't fit the mold of what a king should be. After John doubts, the text tells us that the cities oppose him. Even though they had seen the power of God in his miracles, they would be judged more severely than other cities because of their knowledge of who he is. And of course, the Pharisees, they join in on the rejection. Now, I want you to understand the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus is the ugliest of them all because in chapter 12, the Pharisees' reason for rejecting Jesus is that they claim his power to come from Satan. 
Think about that. Their perception of Jesus is so clouded by years of tradition and expectation of a coming king to overthrow the world empires that they go to the extreme and claim he is empowered by Satan. This is a willful rejection of Jesus and the Holy Spirit who was empowering Jesus and God's plan to use Jesus to save the world from their sins. It's a rejection of all three members of the Trinity. I bet you didn't see that on the first pass. Now, because of the rejection in chapters 12, the focus on Jesus now changes. The fact that the events of chapter 13 happened on the same day as those of chapter 12 should not be overlooked. Now, listen carefully. Because of the Jewish rejection of Jesus, the kingdom that Jesus was promising to inaugurate will be postponed to a later date. Jesus had already used parables to illustrate his teaching, but now rising opposition led him to use them more. Now he began to use parables to reveal new truth about the kingdom because of Israel's rejection of him. This new truth, revelation that had not been given previously, was a mystery. Now this is not spookiness or mysteriousness. Mystery as it occurs in the New Testament refers to a newly revealed truth. God had previously not revealed it, but now in the New Testament he does. Think of it this way. It was God's hope that Israel would accept their Messiah the first time, but they rejected him. On the basis of their rejection of him, Jesus began to reveal things about the kingdom that were not revealed to the Old Testament prophets. If God revealed this new kingdom material to the Old Testament prophets, then God would be setting up Israel for a fall in the first place. He would be saying that he knew Israel was going to reject their Messiah the first time. Now, I know what you're thinking. Didn't God already know? Of course he did. He's God. But even though he knew, he still allowed Israel to choose. And that, my friend, is the delicate balance of free will and sovereignty. God foreknows everything, but he does not predestinate everything that's going to happen. He allows us to choose, just like he allowed Israel the choice of accepting or rejecting. Now, does your brain hurt yet? (laughs) We'll likely never be able to solve the paradox of free will and sovereignty. But enough theology, we got to get back to the text, because the parables themselves are divided into two sections, consisting of four in each section. But it's the first parable and the last parable of the entire section of chapter 13 that are most significant. The first parable is the sower, which shows our responsibility to sow the seeds of God's word wherever we go. We need to be constantly looking for opportunities to share God's word. And the last parable is in chapter 13 verse 52. It's the parable of the homeowner. It illustrates the need to teach both the new and old truths about the kingdom. The old treasures are those things which are taught in the Old Testament and in the early period of the life of Christ. The new treasures are the mysteries of the kingdom revealed in the parables of Jesus, which reveal what he is doing in our present age. Now, chapter 13 ends with more conflict and rejection. This time, it's in Jesus' own hometown. The people in Nazareth were both amazed and offended at the wisdom and power of Jesus. They could not comprehend that he was more than just a carpenter, the son of Mary and Joseph, and the siblings of his brothers and sisters. Jesus led a perfect life and still had family members and friends who struggled to believe. Think about that. Sometimes those, um, sometimes those most difficult to reach are those who know us best. All right, moving right along, we go into chapter 14. And chapter 14 begins a larger section, chapter 14 through 20, where Jesus does quite a bit of instructing to his disciples. And he also has continued to be opposed and rejected. So at the beginning of chapter 14, um, Herod puts John the Baptist to death. And John's disciples come and bury his body. You know, when Jesus hears the news of John's death, he leaves to be alone and reflects on John's death. John and Jesus are linked tightly together in the Gospel of Matthew. John's death kind of 
anticipates that of Jesus. And the actions of John's disciples is exemplary for Jesus' disciples. You know, if Jesus' disciples were going to be strong and courageous during this upcoming time of testing, their faith needed to be strong. And what a um, what better way to strengthen a disciple's loyalty to Jesus than to perform a miracle? And so these two miracles that round out chapter 14 are some of the most well-known ones, the feeding of the 5,000 and uh, Jesus walking on the water. You know, other than the miracle of the resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that's included in all four Gospels. Uh, that's significant. The purpose of this miracle was to show how the disciples were inadequate to meet the needs of the people and to push them to come to Jesus for help. You know, the Jews had a tradition that when the Messiah came, he would feed the people with bread from heaven, as Moses had done. That's in Deuteronomy 18.15. The spiritually perceptive person understood what Jesus was doing. Others who were fans of Jesus were just glad for the free meal, not realizing what Jesus had just done. Now, the other miracle, the walking on water narrative, is another classic one. Jesus shows up like a ghostly figure, and Peter wants to come out on the water and walk like Jesus is. And when Jesus tells Peter to come out, he does well. But when he looks down at the sea, he begins to sink. And, of course, if you know the story, Jesus reaches down to help Peter up for his lack of faith. But remember that Peter is not the star of the miracle. Sometimes we miss that. Jesus is. Because... All those in the boat who see what happens afterwards, they get the point and they worship Jesus. They don't worship Peter. Of course, Peter has a lack of faith. Of course, we find ourselves uh, acting like Peter most of the time. But the star of the show is Jesus. Don't miss that focus. More conflict arises in chapter four, excuse me, in chapter 15 as certain religious leaders attack the disciples about the issue of cleanliness. However, Jesus first dealt with the more pressing issue at hand, namely the dangerous progression that takes place when traditions become more important than God's word, what these religious leaders were guilty of. And then he returned to the issue of uncleanness. Uncleanness is more a matter of the heart, Jesus says, uh, than the hand. The spirit condition of the heart is the source of evil and unrighteousness, Jesus says. Now, after this confrontation with the religious leaders, Jesus heads north um, and is confronted with a Gentile woman. This lesson is important for the disciples, very, very important. You know, the Jews had priority in God's kingdom program. However, God would deliver Gentiles who also came to him in humble dependence, relying only on his power and mercy for salvation. And so because of her faith, Jesus healed this woman's daughter immediately. Now, the last part of chapter 15 is another instance of Jesus feeding a large crowd. This time it's 4,000, but the place is drastically different. The feeding of the 5,000 was in Jewish territory. The feeding of the 4,000 was in Gentile territory. You know, this incident would have impressed the disciples with God's graciousness in dealing with the Gentiles. His, kingdom's, his kingdom plan definitely included them, albeit in a secondary role. Their role as disciples would include ministry to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. So already, Jesus is showing his disciples the need to start getting the message out to the Gentiles. Now, I'll wait till next week to start chapter 16, even though you'll probably start into it next week. Again, remember, I have limited time with these podcasts, so my purpose is to highlight the bigger picture so that you don't get lost as you read all the details. Email me any questions you have at BibleReading at LMBC.org, and I will talk with you all next week.